Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's your favorite drink? The one you absolutely can't live without. Many people would nominate caffeinated beverages, including coffee or tea. Or maybe you're a soda addict. Perhaps you have a thing for smoothies. Or how about melted chocolate? If you're serious about your love of whatever gastronomic vice you choose, you may have fantasized about what it would be like to swim in a river of your chosen delight. Sure, your clothes and hair would be a bit worse for wear, but that would probably be a small price to pay for the indulgent experience of being surrounded by whatever your heart or stomach desires. When trying to picture what this might look like, a classic movie comes to mind. In Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, we see the golden ticket winners and their chaperones being guided through the magical world of candy production. Basically, most people's idea of confectionery heaven. When the group arrives at the Chocolate River, one of the characters, Augustus Gloop, simply can't help himself. Not to spoil it for you, but yeah, he falls in and gets swept away. What a sweet way to go. But what if Chocolate Rivers weren't just a thing of fiction? If such an event actually occurred, would it be a delicious dream come true or an edible nightmare? One town in Germany did not have to imagine this strange scenario, because in 2018, a river of chocolate became a reality. Sort of. One of the many things we associate with Christmas is enjoying lots of chocolate treats. The demand around this time of year skyrockets, which means big business for chocolate makers. For one commercial chocolatier in Germany, however, the 2018 holiday season was almost compromised when they lost a ton of milk chocolate. I'm not talking about misplacing a shipment or throwing away a bad batch. Oh no. At around 8 p.m. on December 10, 2018, just on the outskirts of a town called Verl, the streets began to fill with hot liquid chocolate. It was flowing out of a nearby factory owned by the Drymeister Company, where only minutes earlier, everything was operating normally. But no one noticed that somewhere among all the machinery, a holding tank was beginning to overflow. A spokesperson for the company would later report that it experienced a small technical defect, but what followed caused sweet chaos. A river of melted chocolate flowed outside the production facility and into the street. Similar to a lava flow, however, it wouldn't stay liquefied for long. The more contact the chocolate had with the cold winter air, the faster it started to solidify which created an interesting situation. Instead of being a runny mess, 
local authorities now had to decide how to clean up the world's largest chocolate bar. According to reports, the massive treat measured an impressive 108 square feet. It's a story straight out of a Willy Wonka's factory, a chocolate lover's dream. Take, Take a, look a look at this pictures. video out of Germany. You can see firefighters working to clean up liquid chocolate from the street. There it is, a river of chocolate scooping it up there with a cup. Yeah. It, it worked. Uh, yeah, movies come to life. The fire department went to work on the delicious slab with hot water and blow torches. Once the chocolate was sufficiently melted, it could be broken apart and safely removed in manageable chunks. Sadly, the five-second rule did not apply in this case. The tasty mess was deemed unfit for consumption and was unceremoniously disposed. Chocolate lovers everywhere were pleased to find out that, despite the incident, Drymeister's Christmas chocolate production schedule remained unaffected. Thankfully, aside from disrupting traffic for a few hours, no one was injured or severely impacted by the spill. Unfortunately, that cannot be said for other culinary disasters. Going back through history, there have been some food and beverage mishaps that caused more than just a slow-moving river. We're about to find out that in some cases, it was a deadly flood. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. A hundred years before the chocolate incident in Germany, there was a much more infamous and deadly, not to mention sticky, event in Boston, Massachusetts. Like today, Boston Harbor was a thriving port, welcoming cargo from all over the world, as well as exporting goods to other countries. One of the many things to be shipped into Boston at the time was molasses. The dark syrup is made from boiled sugarcane, and often arrived in huge commercial quantities. Depending on the outside air temperature, the substance takes on a kind of gelatinous quality, and just like chocolate, when molasses gets cold, it hardens. The result is something resembling toffee. In the early 20th century, molasses shipped into Boston was pumped out of massive tankers and stored in large tanks at a distilling facility. The Boston facility was located on Commercial Street, which runs along much of the harborfront area. The molasses would then be transported to another facility, which used it to produce ethanol. The tanks used to hold the sticky extract were gigantic, reaching approximately 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. The holding tank in Boston had been constructed in 1915 and could hold up to 2.3 million gallons. That's about the same as the amount of water in three-and-a-half Olympic-sized swimming pools. So, yeah, that's a lot of molasses. On January 15th, 1919, Bostonians were going about their business as usual. It was a warm day for that time of year, which was a welcome change from the typically freezing temperatures. The day before, a cargo vessel had arrived with a new shipment of molasses. The syrup could only be pumped into the holding tank after the brown substance had been warmed up a bit. The Boston tank contained some older molasses, which was a lot colder than the fresh batch being pumped in from the tanker. So, as the sun passed high in the sky and the afternoon heat began to rise, 
a chain reaction occurred that resulted in something uniquely catastrophic. Although witness reports differ on what they saw or heard first, it's generally agreed that it started around 12.30 p.m. That's when people said they felt the ground begin shaking. As the tremor intensified, it was accompanied by an incredibly loud roar and what witnesses described as the sound of gunfire. It may have felt like an earthquake, and for the many people who saw what happened next, they probably wished it had been. The ground shaking and rumbling noise was coming from the giant molasses tank. The structure was coming apart violently, and as shocked onlookers tried to grasp the reality of the situation, it exploded. The reports of gunfire, it turned out, was actually the sound of thousands of rivets popping out as the walls of the tank gave way. More than two million gallons of molasses rushed through the streets of Boston's North End. People couldn't believe their eyes as the dark syrup submerged everything in its path. Buildings, people, horses, carts, vehicles, and the railroad were all swept up and consumed by the brown wave. At points, the mass flowed at a staggering 35 miles per hour and reached heights of up to 25 feet. One of the factors making the flood so devastating is that the consistency of molasses is around 40% more dense than water. The resulting force meant that the energy of the initial wave was so strong that the victims were dismembered upon impact. One of the great difficulties of being overrun by molasses is that it has similar properties to quicksand. People and horses trapped waist-deep by the flood soon found that the more they struggled, the more stuck they became. As the molasses continued to harden thanks to the cold winter air, those unfortunate enough to be trapped suffocated to death. The damage to that part of Boston was extensive. Where buildings had once stood were now empty lots. The railroad tracks had buckled and resembled something closer to spaghetti. One vehicle ended up getting pushed into the harbor. Despite the widespread destruction, the greatest tragedy were the victims. 21 people died in the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Another 150 were injured. Because the devastation was so vast and the cleanup such a challenge, it took rescue teams months to recover the bodies of some of the victims. It was even more difficult to find those who had been swept into what was now a very brown Boston Harbor. If you've ever spilled syrup, you know how quickly it manages to find its way onto everything. Boston was no exception. Molasses was everywhere. The problem was made worse as cleanup crews unintentionally tracked it all over the city. The operation lasted for weeks, with a massive amount of salt water used to dissolve the sticky residue. The streets may have been cleaned up, but the people of Boston were angry, and they were not about to wash the deadly incident away. They demanded answers and accountability. An investigation found a couple of factors greatly contributed to the tragedy. 
To those who worked at the facility at the time, the holding tank in question was trouble from the start. Instead of being made from the high-grade materials suited for large-scale tanks, the company cut financial and time-related corners, resulting in structural defects. Also, the required safety tests were never conducted before the tank was first filled. In fact, investigators discovered that the person who had authorized the construction plans was not a qualified architect or engineer. The massive tank had been put together quickly and had reportedly been leaking from day one. It was painted brown to conceal the issue as much as possible. It was common knowledge among locals that the leak was so bad you could go down and collect buckets of molasses just by standing next to it. The other thing investigators took into account for the incident involved basic science. In this case, it was the fermentation process, which produces carbon dioxide. As the new molasses at the bottom of the tank began fermenting, the bubbles of gas had nowhere to go, given there was another colder, heavier layer of molasses on top. Much like a well-shaken bottle of soda, the pressure built up and had to escape somehow. The unseasonably warm weather on that day didn't help either. As the temperature rose, the molasses started expanding, which added further stress to the already pressurized holding tank. The disaster resulted in a landmark class-action lawsuit that represented around 120 Bostonians. After a dragged-out three-year wait, a $628,000 payout, or just over $9 million today, was awarded by the court, payable by the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Families of the victims received $7,000 per fatality, which is equal to just over $100,000 today. By this time, of course, prohibition had come into force across the U.S., so there was no reason to replace the massive holding tank. Not long after, the shipments of syrup stopped altogether. But for almost a hundred years after the disaster, the warm summer weather brought with it the sweet smell of molasses. To the residents of Boston, however, the scent came as a sobering reminder of what happened on that terrifying January day in 1919. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Somewhere that was not subject to prohibition laws was London, England. A hundred years before the Boston molasses flood, business was booming for London breweries. While gin consumption was still popular throughout the city during the early 19th century, it was starting to see some competition. Beer was growing in demand as more and more Londoners made it their drink of choice. At the time, there were two main beer producers. One was the Horseshoe Brewery, which was located near Oxford Street, and the other was Tottenham Court Road, which brewed a highly popular style of beer known as Porter. Horseshoe was acquired in 1809 by Mia and Company, and subsequently renamed. 
The family-owned brewery had a long tradition of building large-scale fermentation vats, and a year after taking ownership, had installed a wooden tank that stood at 22 feet tall. It had the capacity to hold 18,000 barrels worth of beer, which could fill just under 2.5 million pint glasses. The wooden panels of the tank were secured by 81 metric tons of iron rings, each one weighing nearly 700 pounds. For a company with such grand ambitions, the brewery wasn't exactly located in the best part of town. Behind the building ran New Street, which fed into a large area of London known as St. Giles Rookery. This was one of the most underprivileged parts of London, filled with crumbling, filthy tenement housing. The poorest of the poor lived here, crammed into the dirty, narrow streets and alleys of the overcrowded slum. On the afternoon of October 17, 1814, the residents of St. Giles Rookery were going about their usual business. This included a man named George Crick, who was a storeroom clerk at the brewery. At around 4.30 p.m., he noticed something slightly unusual. One of the massive iron hoops around the 22-foot vat had come loose and slipped down the side. The clerk, however, was not too worried. Throughout the year, it wasn't uncommon for the holding rings to fall a few times. George Crick reported the situation to his boss, and like always, was assured that it was nothing to be concerned about. But the tank was filled to capacity, so George was instructed to submit the paperwork to have the ring repaired. There was no sense of urgency. Not that it would have mattered. People in the St. Giles area, of course, were blissfully unaware of what was happening at the nearby brewery. Four-year-old Hannah Bamfield was enjoying afternoon tea at home with her mother and a young friend. Down the street, Anne Saval and her family were holding a wake for the death of her two-year-old son. Over at the Tavistock Arms pub on Great Russell Street, 14-year-old Eleanor Cooper was hard at work scrubbing pots in the yard. At around 5.30 p.m., with no warning, the huge beer vat exploded. The incredible force of the eruption caused a domino effect, ripping the valves of nearby tanks clean off. Almost 1.5 million liters of beer tore through the facility's rear wall. Bricks from the nearly 25-foot double wall rocketed into the sky, slamming back down onto nearby streets. A moment later, in what's been described as a beer tsunami, a 15-foot-high wave of porter destroyed homes and businesses as it rushed out of the brewery. Hannah Bamfield was killed by the torrent as it smashed into her home. The force of the current swept her mother and playmate outside and onto the street. They both survived. At the wake for Anne Savile's son, Anne and four other mourners in attendance were killed, including a three-year-old boy. Eleanor Cooper, who was washing dishes in the pub's yard, didn't stand a chance. She was crushed when the rear wall of the brewery, which bordered the yard, collapsed on top of her. One factor that led to an even higher loss of life was the flat, low-lying terrain around the brewery. Combined with poor drainage, the massive amount of liquid had nowhere to go. 
This meant that when beer poured into nearby buildings, the basements, often housing large families, were the first to become flooded. In total, eight people were killed that day, and several others were injured. It was nothing short of pure luck that more people did not lose their lives in the incident. Incredibly, with the paperwork to fix the holding tank in his hand, George Crick and all of his co-workers survived, a few sustaining only minor injuries. George Crick later told reporters what he witnessed. I was on a platform about 30 feet from the vat when it burst. I heard the crash as it went off and ran immediately to the storehouse where the vat was situated. It caused dreadful devastation on the premises. It knocked four butts over and staved several as the pressure was so excessive. Between eight and 9,000 barrels of porter lost. In addition to the human toll, the disaster caused extensive damage to the already dilapidated structures in the area. At the brewery and across St. Giles Rookery, it looked like a bomb had gone off. Shocked residents gathered at the facility to see the scale of the damage for themselves. But if they wanted to take in the epicenter of the flood, the experience came at a cost. According to reports, the guards who had been placed at the now-exposed brewery embraced the opportunity and began charging the public a fee to gawk at the exploded tanks and what was left of the building. Only two days later, a coroner's inquest was held to determine what had happened and who was responsible. Like modern-day court cases, the jury was taken to the disaster site. Not only did they tour the destroyed brewing operation, but they also had the grisly task of viewing the bodies of the victims. Among those to give evidence at the inquest were George Crick, who first noticed the vat's dislodged iron ring, and the owner of the pub where teenager Eleanor Cooper had lost her life. Placing no accountability on the company, the court decided the eight victims were killed, as they called it, casually, accidentally, and by misfortune. The coroner determined that the deadly beer flood was simply an act of God. He also concluded that no specific individual was considered liable. Unfortunately, this meant that none of the residents or businesses impacted were entitled to any compensation from the brewing company. Over the years, the legend of the London beer flood grew. Stories of widespread drunkenness and locals filling buckets of beer off the streets took on a life of their own. In reality, the area surrounding the brewery was quiet and calm. There were no out-of-control drunken parties or crowds of residents drinking off the ground. In fact, reports at the time noted just how civilized, well-behaved, and charitable everyone was. Londoners rallied around the families of those who had lost loved ones, donating what they could to assist with funeral costs. Despite managing to avoid responsibility for the tragedy, the brewing company did not get off entirely free. Horseshoe Brewery almost went bankrupt. It wasn't just the financial loss associated with all the beer that literally went down the drain, but it was also the cost of repairing the damaged facility and surrounding premises. After petitioning British Parliament, the brewery managed to get some of that money back, which narrowly prevented them from going under. 
The commercial brewing industry walked away with a valuable lesson from the disaster, with concrete tanks eventually replacing the wooden vats. The London brewery responsible for the deadly beer flood of 1814 remained in operation for over 100 years, finally closing their doors in 1921. Today, the former site is home to visual spectacles of a different kind, in the form of the Dominion Theatre. Don't worry though, you can still get a beer. Last on this list, but certainly not least, there's the Dublin Whiskey Flood of 1875. The incident began when a fire broke out at a storehouse that held more than 5,000 barrels of spirits, most of which was whiskey. At around 9.30 p.m. on June 18, 1875, the barrels of highly combustible, non-diluted alcohol started to explode. A river of whiskey flowed from the burning building and into the streets of the Irish capital. Unfortunately, the torrent of alcohol was also on fire as it ran down alleyways and side streets, setting alight everything in its path. As homes and businesses burned, the fire department tried desperately to get the situation under control. Using water, as they found out, only made matters worse, as the flammable whiskey was pushed to the surface. Next, they tried stopping the flow by creating dirt and gravel dams along its destructive path, but that failed as well. The strong current went right through the improvised barriers. That's when the captain of the fire brigade had a rather brilliant idea, albeit totally disgusting. With horses being the main source of transportation at the time, there was no shortage of manure. Using his keen knowledge of the absorbing properties of animal droppings, firefighters began gathering as much of the smelly poop as possible. They used it to create levees to try once again to stop the river of burning whiskey. Just to be extra cautious, they also smeared excrement over the streets, coating the ground in a thick layer. The unorthodox idea was actually extremely effective, and with quick action by the fire brigade, the disaster was finally over. Or was it? Despite the extensive damage as homes and businesses went up in flames, incredibly, no one was killed by the fire. However, as word spread that the area was under half a foot of alcohol, it didn't take long before the crowds showed up. Hundreds of people used whatever they could find to drink the free whiskey. Shoes and hats were not out of the question at this impromptu street party. The problem was... The undiluted whiskey was so strong that it was toxic. By the time people realized the danger, over a dozen people were dead and hundreds more were hospitalized with alcohol poisoning. Of those who required medical attention, many were left with brain damage and permanent vision loss. In the wake of the disaster, Dublin's firefighters were hailed as genuine heroes for saving the city. To avoid an incident this widespread in the future, the department made significant changes to its operating model. Instead of having a central firehouse, several fire stations were opened throughout the city. 
the distilleries in the area also made changes to ensure that a burning river of alcohol does not destroy the entire city. Cheers to that! Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.